Hello and welcome to the Christ and Coffee podcast. We're going to talk about the two things you're not supposed to talk about on a first date. That's right. We're going to talk about politics and religion. Uh, my name is Taigo and I'm with Jeremy, a co-host of the Christ and Coffee podcast. And we have uh, our friend Rick Berry joining us uh, to talk about his nonprofit organization and to talk about how the church can talk about uh, politics without it becoming so bipartisan uh, and unproductive. And, uh, and we're just delighted to talk about this topic uh, because it's so important, especially right now in this moment in American history, uh, we need to be unified above all else, uh, especially uh, for those in the church. So uh, Rick, welcome. And uh, how are you doing, brother? Uh, I'm doing about as well as we can expect anyone to be doing right now. Uh, it's been a wild and mind-boggling three months um, and distressing and disappointing in a lot of ways. And But also three months that have, I know, driven my wife and I deeper into prayer and deeper into reminding ourselves and reminding the people in our lives what our hope actually is. It's been the saddest three months of spiritual growth we've had in a long time. How are you all doing today? I I love how, uh, you know, the the season we're in asking that simple question of how you're doing becomes such a complex response when it used to be like, you you just used to say like, yeah, we're doing good. And now it's like, I just can't get myself to say I'm doing good. Like I can't well, do that. Is, I was always so bad at that. <laughs> yeah. like, and it took me maybe until senior year of college to realize that when I'm in the elevator with a stranger going up to like whatever floor our dorm was on and they just said, how are you doing? They weren't actually wanting to know how I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. They just wanted to know I'm doing fine. Yeah. I've never been good at that. Yeah. It's weird, like saying "What's up" or "How you're doing" is turned into a fake greeting. Uh, yeah, 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 like it's phenomenal. It's like, no, nope, yeah. I don't have the time to actually know how you're doing. I need to to, to go on my way. My wife has always said that I'm. I specifically am not good at small talk, and I'm barely good at medium talk. So <laughs> I feel like everyone else in the world is finally reacting the way I do to basic questions. Yeah, that's hilarious. But how are you all? doing how are you holding up how's um yeah how's life in ministry for you right now sure it's confusing it's i mean it's just trying you know leading a congregation through an unprecedented uh turbulent time especially with the split in people's um source of data and news depending on where they get their information from there's differing approaches to how to move forward and so it's just a very fragmented season it's uh seminary did not train anybody uh to con- <laughs> to to walk a congregation through a global <laughs> pandemic while uh deep racial tension and protest and looting and riots <laughs> take over the country it's uh it's a very challenging time uh, to to lead, and that's probably a dramatic understatement. Um, but I just might be a little dramatic. I don't know. How do you feel the same way? 
Uh, yeah, like, so this past Sunday when I was preaching on Jesus saying, love your enemies and uh, what good is it? Like, you're no different than a pagan if you only stick to your own tribe. Like, be perfect as your Heavenly Father's perfect is in the context of, are you just hanging out with people who are just like you? Are, uh, and uh, the call for a Christian is not just to um, uh, be within their own church, but to actually learn and love other people. And uh, as we talked about in a previous podcast, uh, there's a difference between the command to love your enemy and to tolerate your the, the opposing belief person. As Christians, we're not supposed to toler- just tolerate. Toleration is good, but we're supposed to love uh, those who are completely different from us. So it's crazy how I was just preaching that spiritual truth. Like this is what makes Christianity radical is this ability to love the other. Um, how to convey that in this season where we're talking about racism, systemic racism, we're talking about looting, we're talking about uh, politics by just saying certain words mm-hmm. and those trigger words. So if I say Donald Trump, people are going to automatically like love or hate. There's usually no neutral uh, expression. Uh, there's certain catchphrases. So it's like for pastors, it's walking a tightrope. Uh, at times so you're trying to convey a deeper spiritual truth but you could fall into these ideological political platform traps yeah it's like i'm not even trying to talk about politics here i'm just talking about jesus christ's commandment to love but in the act of trying to just convey that because of the atmosphere we're in uh it's really challenging for a lot of pastors like no no this is not a republican thing this is not a democrat thing i'm just trying to preach from the scriptures and uh uh, I think that's why I asked you to be on this podcast because I yeah yeah I I think I think it's actually somewhat re- refreshing that I can at this moment just read scripture and nine times out of ten it will create some sort of controversy like there's something kind of exciting about like the freshness and the the like the provocation of of scripture like i can read something like welcome the alien or welcome the immigrant and it's just scripture like i haven't even interpreted the text for anybody and it can cause an uproar and a conversation of where you stand and i i just like that there's a i mean it's obviously uncomfortable but there is a sense that it reclaims the 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 newness of scripture in a way that maybe you know, maybe we've just read it in a boring old way for so long that, you know, now it's able to come alive again. But anyways, I, I just love I, that I, you're I appreciate that. putting your finger on that because that is, I think for a lot of the pastors I've been talking to, that feels more like a challenge than a joy mm. um, where I mean, you can get very used to even bad situations to the point where things improving become uncomfortable for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that this is maybe a positive but uncomfortable improvement. Um, the, the concept that scripture, our political presuppositions have become so polarized and so sensitive that we are actually newly aware of or newly sensitive to 
how radical or challenging or mm. difficult parts of scripture that we either glossed over or just assumed we were already doing well without any interrogation mm-hmm. actually are. Mm-hmm. Like scripture mm-hmm. becoming challenging again is mm-hmm. maybe a really good thing for our yeah. discipleship. Yeah. That's a tagline I can get behind. Make scripture challenging again. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Rick, can you tell us a little bit, uh, about Christian civics, like just the the original vision and and sort of how what we're talking about um, is taken sure. into your vision and sort of applied and explored. Sure thing. Um, the Center for Christian Civics started because uh, my co-founder and I got set up on a friend date by his fiance. <laughs> uh, well, now his wife, but um, I had worked on political campaigns and worked for churches and nonprofits. I worked for a pretty big church in New York and a network of churches in DC. Uh, And he had grown up in ministry. He was a third generation uh, missionary kid and then was working for congressional leadership. Uh, But we were working on opposite sides of the aisle. Uh, And I was working uh, for a church his fiance started working for them as well. We started getting to know each other and she said, you and my fiance really need to become friends. Mm -hmm. And we quickly realized that while we were professionally political opponents, we, the things that were making it hard for me to operate in my party, were also making it hard for him to operate faithfully in his party. Um, Mm -hmm. We had the same disappointments with the models that were being offered to us for how our faith should inform our political engagement and the same hopes for how we wanted to see the church contribute to the peace and well-being of the city around us. Hmm. And so we started blogging together and slowly out of that blog, we started building a more robust full-time ministry together. Uh, And the Center for Christian Civics, I like to say, works to promote civic responsibility and political depolarization in the church. We want to help our brothers and sisters really um, take on enthusiastically uh, the responsibility of being entrusted by God with being on a 300 million person Pharaoh committee Hmm. in the United States Hmm. Hmm. and get really enthusiastic about embodying what it means to pursue that responsibility while also modeling what it looks like to be part of a kingdom that represents every tribe and tongue, to be part of a kingdom that is uh, kind of a Galatians 3 or a Colossians 3 body of believers, where there's not man or woman, Jew or Greek, Bush supporter or Bernie bro, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So how do we live like Nebuchadnezzar after he comes back to his senses and reapproaches those responsibilities of stewarding the authority, identity, and legitimacy of his state in light of the power of God. But how do we do that as part of a body of believers that is supposed to be a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom where the kings of every nation will actually lay their crowns at Jesus's feet? Uh, That's a unique challenge that most people in most of church history have not had to deal with, but it is something we believe 
uh, is a un uh, something we're excited about the fact that God saw fit to challenge believers in the U.S. today with. Mm. That's not something that m most of the church fathers ever would have had to wrestle with. And I think it's really cool that God trusts us enough to put us in that position. Hmm. Hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, fantastically. I'm just trying to process. I, I wonder in your, in your years of, of doing this, have you experienced the kind of polarization that we're experiencing right now? It seems like we're in unprecedented waters just for me personally, but I'm curious to see if that's just my read and take on it. Um, I will say for people under maybe the age of 50, mm. this is unprecedented. We have not kind of experienced this degree of widespread animosity and um, this type of conversation about politics and government before. Our whole lives, everyone in the public square has always basically said that their goal is, or the goal of government and the goal of the state in the U.S. should be to secure as much safety and flourishing for as many people as possible, regardless of race, color, creed, or class. Um, but the fact that we're now having conversations in the public square about what groups of people should be prioritized in American public policy and having those conversations openly. Mm -hmm. The fact that there's so much anger and animosity um, isn't unprecedented in American history. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely not unprecedented in the history of the world. Like mm -hmm. political murders, political assassinations were common in the 60s. Uh, politically motivated domestic terrorism were, was common in the 1970s. This is unprecedented in our lifetime, hmm. but not unprecedented in the history of the Union. We sure. had an entire open militarized civil war uh, like 150-ish years ago. Hmm. Um, that's not that long ago in the history of the church. That's not, especially not that long ago in the history of the world. Hmm. Uh, what has always been different in um, or what is different now that is unprecedented is the mechanisms we're using to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. uh, we were, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the fact that a lot of our conversation about this now happens over social media, which I, if I was, if you asked me to design the worst possible system for getting people to think and speak constructively about politics and government. I don't know if I could come up with a system that is worse than Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> um, not just for provoking good ideas, but for the way it shapes us and malforms us. Mm. Like most of our conversation about these things are now happening in mediums that are designed to put the most provocative uh, material in front of us, the material that mm, is going to be most likely to trigger our fight or flight responses, uh, the part of our brain called the amygdala, uh, that makes it very hard to think about government as a responsibility. It um, provokes our tribalism. It provokes uh, our cynicism. It provokes our 
uh, desire to entrench and protect uh, when that kind of um, neurological, when, the, when that part of our brain is triggered, it becomes very hard neurologically to prioritize deliberately caring for others. Um, it our communication medium about this provokes self-interest in a way that face-to-face -face conversation, in a way that even reading something in print does not. Mm -hmm. So the unprecedented thing I think A is the tools we have available to talk about this are particularly not constructive. Mm -hmm. And then B, like you said a few minutes ago, uh, I'm not a historian, but I'm struggling to think of a time when this type of widespread social upheaval was happening at the same time as this kind of widespread pandemic. Mm -hmm. but wasn't actually related to or a direct result of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We have these kind of two major social inflection points happening at the same time and our only tools for talking about it and processing them en masse are particularly ill-suited to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not an alarmist and I don't like to say that this, I tend not to say we're in unprecedented times, but I'm starting to think we are entering into them, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I like what, go ahead. I like what you're saying with the technology making this unprecedented. Um, and uh, hopefully the, the, like this podcast forum, it, it provides opportunities where it's not sound bites, where people could actually talk and flesh out complicated problems, not with a, a Twitter feed or a 10 second breaking news segment um, to just get that fight and flight responsibility. Uh, but I, I feel like part of the digital revolution that we are like an experiment, if we're honest, there hasn't been anything like this in 500 years since the printing press, where the way we communicate has completely changed and how we communicate literally changes the circuiting in our mind. Our yeah. brains are neuroplastic. We change uh, based on how we speak and receive data. Um, so that is unprecedented. And we're in this experiment and in a very pressure cooker situation with the corona quarantines and then with the murder of uh, George Floyd uh, just being the the, the, the the thing that led to all these protests it was enough is enough um, so my concern is part of digital technology is our inability to to actually sit and listen everything is short-term memory not long-term memory with with a lot of the way we consume media uh, I know my attention span has uh, decreased over time because um, if I if I forget something I could just Google it. But what happens when I can't Google it? Um, so I know that's being problem problematic, and I know studies support what I'm saying. Uh, people can't read novels like they used to read, um, and this is this is a scary times because if if we're only thinking in short term memory, not long term memory, we could lose sight of history. We could lose sight of uh, analytical thinking that helps us solve these issues of racism and poverty um but but the political system for me it seems like we, we just want to get reactions out of people and create an us versus them mindset versus a productive uh channel of all right let's let's actually work together and, and actually solve a problem and i think you're hitting something that is i think always been one of the particular challenges of discipleship for Christians in the U.S. is 
uh, being oriented in history. The, to be a Christian is to be grafted into the life of Christ. That, um, you know, he was born 2,000 years ago, but the Gospels orient his life even farther back than that. They tie him into a, a family history that goes back hundreds of years, and they orient his life in the entire scope of human history that goes back thousands of years. One of his genealogies goes back to Abraham, the other goes back to Adam. And we are, to be a Christian is to have your life um, oriented within that, not um, oriented within yourself. But America, for everything I love about this country and everything that um, I think America provides as an opportunity for practicing for the kingdom, in a way that you might not have living anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. One of the things that it does make hard to do is um, maintain a perspective of being moored in history that goes back farther than the 1700s. Uh, the longer you're in the U.S. or the longer your family is in the U.S., the more you are encouraged to uh, let go of uh, any historical point of view that is broader than the history of the U.S. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of people who end up in white supremacy uh, are not, their families did not immigrate recently. Uh, you don't have a lot of people who know what village in Italy their family came from who are also uh, pointing to just general white as their primary identity. Um, whether your family was brought here as slaves and had their kind of place in a broader history forcibly removed, or whether your family came here voluntarily and over the course of generations, American identity has slowly supplanted any other historical identity uh, in the way you understand yourself and your place in the world and your place in history. Um, either way, the gospel um, ends up challenging us to think about ourselves and think about history in a way that um, America discourages and American citizenship discourages. It's an honor and it's exciting to be part, asked to invest in this experiment in self-government. But there are some downstream effects of participating in it that uh, the gospel challenges and um, some downstream effects that make um, holistic discipleship difficult. And we have to make a deliberate effort to remember as Christians that we're participating in America, we're helping steward this country, but our story is not just the story of being American. Um, our story is bigger and broader and longer and deeper than just the American story. I think what uh, what we're kind of naming is this sort of maybe not necessarily uniquely American idea. It, it's been shaped by social media. It's been shaped by our history and our culture. But there is this sort of radical individualism that that we as Christians um, have to respond to in a way that is, as we're saying, rooted in 
the tradition of the gospel and the family of Christ that's gone, you know, all the way through to the old, the line of the old Testament. And I, I just find that, um, this, this, uh, a historicism is also kind of a relativizing of history because what matters is me, myself, and I, um, and, and a total, like neglect of our belongingness to a people, a tribe, a community, and one another. Um, so it's partially connected to social media, but I think it's also just connected to a sort of Western tradition of individualism that we've inherited in the States. Um, and I, I, I have a sense also that one of the things that social media uniquely shapes us in, um, forms us um, towards, um, is this kind of zero level of accountability like i can get on twitter and i can say whatever i want to anybody <laughs> right and i guess there's like general accountability like you can't spill hate speech on twitter um but i'm i'm you know, I, I think we've pushed that envelope a couple of times <laughs> over the past couple of years and um but that lack of accountability i think fosters a a, a lack of empathy um, if I don't see the pain in the other person across from me when I say something hurtful, um, it, it removes any sense of my my words or my my comments or my perspective or my ideology having uh, an effect on somebody and bringing pain to them. And I don't think that uh, you know I don't think that's something that particularly fosters connection and wholeness and like you said it just uh, social media has maybe set us up to deepen or, or the hole or or dig ourselves deeper into this um just this sense of not really knowing the hurt and pain we cause to somebody else it's formed us in a way that we've lost uh, you know meaningful empathy yeah, i'm trying to remember who it is i think it was the comedian john mulaney who described uh, his body as this box that carries my brain around. <laughs> and social media is, I think, the apotheosis of that. It's the ultimate expression of what matters is, are the things you can think and say and not the rest of what you do or even um, kind of the rest of who you are. Mm -hmm. But we are, as creatures, designed for embodiment we our bodies aren't just coincident to our minds our bodies are part of who we are like adam became a living being when there was breath in his lungs or you know as most translations in the hebrew put it i believe adam became a living soul when there was breath in his lungs uh, social media does encourage us to um prioritize and emphasize the cognitive aspects of who we are and what we do over anything else. But Jesus's MO was never that. His MO was to get 12 people together on very different sides of major seemingly black and white political and geopolitical divides. He had Jewish zealots and imperial collaborators and tax collectors. Uh, camping going on a three-year itinerant camping trip with him yeah uh he part of discipleship is fundamentally 
sitting at the feet of Christ together, shoulder to shoulder with, across a table with, and serving others next to, hand in hand with, people very different from yourself, not just um, in kind of superficial ways, but people whose very deepest commitments are before Christ very different from your own deepest commitments and letting those commitments you each make be challenged by the other in light of how you are seeing Christ together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And social media is so inherently performative. It is so inherently, it inherently guides us towards saying, thinking, and posting things that are most likely to get quick likes and quick comments from people who are most prone to like it, that um, it makes it very hard. It's not a very conducive medium um, toward learning to listen, learning to be quick to listen and slow to speak. It's not a very conducive medium to um, finding ways to actually learn alongside people who you would not already be likely to want to spend time with were it not for the gospel. Mm. Um, it's, I don't mean to keep circling back to using Facebook and Twitter responsibly is hard for Christians because people are watching and listening to this on Facebook right now. And that's, <laughs> I think, a good thing. And these things can be used constructively and redemptively, but to do that, you have to use them intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just conform to the patterns of the world. You can't just be tossed about by every whim and tide of algorithm. You have to um, take your social media identities captive mm-hmm. if you are mm-hmm. going to n- navigate it in a way that actually makes you look more like Christ, not less like him. Unlike a... Uh, on a very like pragmatic, practical level, a part of what Christian civics does is uh, address this um, and intervene in a way to sort of uh, recapture that spirit of reconciliation that binds uh, the two. And so I'm just wondering on a pragmatic level, what kind of interventions or what kind of practices have you guys found successful in bridging the divide politically, ideologically, um, you know, I'm sure it goes deeper than just conservative, liberal. I'm sure there's all sorts of different ideological um, differences that pull people apart. But what have you guys found useful in sort of reconciling those disparate parties? Um, I, and just so I am clear on what you're asking, are you asking what practically does our work look like? Or are you asking what are kind of the biggest concepts, vectors, obstacles to this kind of reconciliation that we've identified in people's lives. Yeah, let's, at- start, let's start with that first one. Uh, okay. What do you guys, yeah, what do you guys do? Um, we offer classes um, and by classes, we're actually transitioning from just offering one-off classes to offering kind of a more robust multi-month training program hmm. for churches. For the first couple years we were around, we were building out our board of directors, building out our curriculum development team, and offering 
one-off classes that ranged from one to four hours for either kind of adult Sunday school level or church staff training. Um, we offer, and we've offered curriculum in the past, Bible study curriculum, um, staff training programs. Uh, now we're consolidating all of those things into one more comprehensive program called Foundations of Christian Civic Engagement. And this is a four to five month program that uh, trains church staff and lay leadership, motivates the broader congregation, gives uh, and ends with a you know, roadmap for church staff working with the broader congregation to develop a practical plan for welcoming in people in your community who don't match the existing political demographics of your church, identifying what the most practical needs your community, uh, your mission field has um, that your congregation can be addressing and learning how to exercise the responsibility of citizenship together um, without driving one another farther apart into political polarization. So at the end of the five months, you'll have, an, the church leadership will have a plan in place for uh, practical programs and curriculum and Bible study and um, diaconal kind of mercy and justice engagement with your city that addresses the biggest practical needs your town is facing uh, that actually turns your congregants into the kind of people your city council members hope show up to town hall meetings hmm. and will result in the political demographics of your church starting to more closely reflect the political demographics of the community around you, not through political conversion, but through political attraction and through the formation of new relationships. So your congregants will actually be able to not just learn how to engage with and relate to people on the other side of the aisle from them as a matter of kind of begrudging obligation, but they'll actually develop an understanding of and an excitement about the ways that they can grow to look more like Christ by welcoming in the witness of Christians who don't share their politics. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the biggest thing we're building our ministry around for the next couple of years is uh, going, instead of going in and doing these one-off classes or speaking once at a conference, uh, the thing we had been hearing every time we did that was, this was great, but we really wish it was more than just a one-day thing. Mm -hmm. And so we've been working for the last year on figuring out how do we uh, turn this into a longer program without asking too much at one time from mm -hmm either the church leadership or the church members. Uh, how do we do this in a way that naturally and organically integrates into the fabric of the church's life? Mm -hmm. And so that combines our classes, our curriculum, along with dedicated coaching. Um, in addition to that, uh, we also tr um, have a blog, a podcast, a newsletter, where um, we try to not just be a content farm, but actually, uh, tie everything we produce into practical action items people can follow up on in their own life, whether it's a passage of scripture to read and specific questions to reflect on, or a particular prayer exercise to do after you've read, read this blog article, or whether it's a specific conversation to have with someone in your small group after you listen to this podcast episode. Um, we, for 
people who aren't part of churches that are doing this bigger program or for people who aren't kind of ready to make that bigger commitment. Every time we post an article, every time we uh, post a podcast episode, we try to give you a small baby step. Uh, baby step sounds condescending. Um, we try to give you a small, easy, practical step you can take to start relating to politics and practicing civic responsibility um, in a way that might be a little less polarized, a little less histrionic, a little less um, hyper-partisan than you're used to or than um, you're getting from the rest of the world around you. Mm. Uh, so yeah, we do classes, we have curriculum, we produce digital content and we do coaching, mm. kind of the four C's of what we do. There you go. <laughs> uh, uh, and you, so with that f follow up, it's great work. You could check out this the resources out at christiancivics.org. Is that? Um, that's the best and, place to go. And um, we'll put a link as we post this as well. So, so uh, as we just talked about before, uh, let's talk about the, the the former question. What what has been the biggest challenge for you to to just get people to even have this conversation in the first place? Um, you all edit this, right? No. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> um, I will say. Um, one of the biggest challenges has been over the last starting America has always had a very strange relationship to um, a strange relationship to outward expressions of Christianity. Um, and that has that got more complicated by the Cold War. Uh, when we were, uh, as a, when the Soviet Union was, you know, growing hegemically through uh, you know, military expansion and America was trying to build a almost voluntary coalition of the willing, one of the ways we differentiated ourselves was, um, in our political rhetoric was that the Soviet Union is avowedly atheist, America and its allies are avowedly not. And so, especially for the last 50 years or so, uh, American, ma the majority middle-class American culture has been very confused and conflated in our political rhetoric, and even in the way we, a lot of people in the U.S. think about ourselves, with uh, verbal expressions of an evil and even um, superficial practices of Christian faith. Mm -hmm. um, to be American and to be Christian kind of got confused in our geopolitical rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And that's made it exceptionally difficult now for people who grew up in that environment to separate their faith from their politics. Mm -hmm. um, people who grew up in the U.S. tend to assume a one-to-one -one relationship between their faith and their politics in a way that a lot of Christians in a lot of other eras um, didn't take, um, they didn't take that for granted. Um, we tend to think of our politics as an expression of our faith rather than um, identifying the 
host of different factors that contribute to our political culture and look and then look for ways that the gospel affirms and challenges them. We tend to think of ourselves as champions of our politics because of our faith rather than missionaries to our politics because of our faith. Um, and as someone who very firmly believes uh, Christians are missionaries to every corner of the world and to every tribe, even the tribes that we tend to like or agree with or um, resonate with or the tribes that we come from ourselves, uh, that's always a bit, that to me seems to be one of the biggest challenges. And that's something that we try to do in our work and in our classes, I think pretty successfully. Um, so if someone is willing to attend one of our classes, then the biggest, hardest lift we help them make is to understand that um, or see their politics not as an expression of their faith, but as something their faith needs to challenge and redeem, even if their politics has a veneer of Christianized language on top of it already. The big difficulty in a lot of cases is helping people see or acknowledge or even just getting them to entertain the possibility that that's something that's actually necessary. Um, that getting people to wrestle with the possibility that their politics is in need of redemption is the big lift and the big challenge at a time when so much of our discourse about public life happens in complete absolutes. Mm. Um, yeah, the way Leslie Newbegin puts it, who's a missionary theologian who I really like, is um, that we have before us the vision of the holy city into which all the glories of all the nations will be brought. And this faith heals the split between the public and private in our lives. It leaves no room for a political fanaticism that would assume that my political accomplishments are going to be what usher in God's kingdom and thus declares a holy war against my political opponents. But it also leaves no space for people who would pursue some kind of personal piety at the expense of living out the gospel story of freedom and justice in our public lives. And it's especially that first part that I think is hard for Americans to get our heads around. The idea that um, the gospel calls us into the public square, but challenges our notions that we can actually enact ultimate good there. Getting people to accept that we're fallen creatures pursuing proximate good to the best of our ability, not soldiers warring against the world around us for the sake of instituting ultimate good with our own hands is the big challenge. And in having those kinds of conversations with people who attend the classes or the seminars or the longer term trainings, um, what helps them do that heavy lifting? Um, it seems like a pretty challenging task to get them to a place where they can think somewhat um, self-critically about their political assumptions or about the nationalism that maybe holds them from, you know, taking that posture. What typically helps bring them to a place where they can maybe think critically about that in your experience? Um, there's, there 
we tend not to convene people ourselves in our mm. organization. We tend to partner uh, with churches or other organizations that have kind of their own groups of pe people they're ministering to that assemble together before we get there and we'll continue assembling after we leave, like mm. fellows programs, uh, campus ministries, local churches. And the reason we do that is because one of the things that we find most effective is ongoing relationship in person with people that you will be accountable to mm -hmm. in an ongoing fashion. Mm -hmm. um, if we just bring people together to give them a good motivational talk and a couple conversation exercises yeah. once and they never see each other again, there's no way to know for sure whether what we said is going to be able to be sustainable or what mm. they were practicing is going to be able to be sustainable. So what we try to do is we, um, when we go in and lead a class, it's a group of people who have all been gathering together already at least once a week, maybe aren't talking about these topics because they know it's going to be divisive and they know, don't know how to do it well. Mm. Or and then in our lessons, we orient them in their shared faith uh, and provide them repeated models for practicing prayer together and practicing conversation together. Mm. Um, so our classes tend to be very hands-on, very interactive. There's a lot of group prayer, a lot of guided prayer exercises, and a lot of conversation exercises where we mm. actually literally have them pair up or break into small groups and practice having conversations about this topic in this way. Um, and when we are able to get people to do that while keeping their eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith, and give them um, kind of models to follow where they can start practicing these things while knowing it's not going to go off the rails, uh, that tends to embolden them. Um, it tends to bring down the fear or the panic that we experience when we encounter um, someone who is saying something that goes against something we already hold deeply. Hmm. It kind of takes away that fight or flight because we're establishing um, some kind of shared commitment, shared trust in having been crucified and resurrected with Christ already. Mm. Right? We go to great lengths to establish you're sitting around the family table with the same parent. You are siblings together in this. You have been crucified and resurrected together. You've been through the same foxhole. You have that bond. Mm. Now practice this discreet conversation together. Um, and I keep thinking about something I've thought about a lot over the last six months is a class we did last November or October, where for one of our conversation exercises, there was um, a young first-generation Asian-American woman, early 30s, paired with uh, a wealthy upper-middle-class white Trump supporter retiree um, who came and the older man came up to me afterwards and said that like, he knew he didn't share politics with this woman who he ended up being paired with for one 10 minute conversation exercise towards the end of the class. Uh, 
and he never thought he would have anything in common with her, but he now feels like he's known her his entire life and he never realized he was capable of understanding and empathizing with the perspective and needs and hopes of someone so radically different from himself. Mm. Um, These are things that a lot of church leaders like yourself haven't been trained to navigate and that's not your fault. Most seminaries don't have political theology classes. And when seminaries do, their political theology is usually rooted in constitutional monarchies where the, even if there's some kind of democratic process, the authority, identity, and legitimacy of the state still derives from some kind of shared ethnic or tribal history or uh, comes from the top down, not the bottom up. Hmm. America really is um, structured radically differently um, in our core governmental functions and identity from most other um, nations that the church has had to learn to navigate before. This has only been around for less than a tenth of church history. It's, we are pioneers uh, when it comes to figuring out how do we navigate a pluralist democracy faithfully as Christians? Hmm. How do we not reject the responsibility God has given us, um, but not treat that responsibility triumphalistically? How do we um, balance embodying the gospel but not succumbing to the kind of all or nothing uh, need to dominate and win that people who don't have the gospel uh, model for us. How do we pursue the common good, pursue uh, maintaining the health of the systems we're entrusted with, while also demonstrating that we really believe there's nothing we can do in politics so good that it will make Jesus come back sooner or so bad that it will make him decide he doesn't need to come back at all. (laughs) Um, So yeah, how do we learn to treat our political tribes as mission fields is maybe the biggest takeaway people keep pointing to from our classes, from our workshops, from our seminars uh, as kind of the biggest change in their thinking from it. Uh, How do we be salt and light to whatever land God has scattered us in, or how do we, um, yeah, sorry, how do we be salt to whatever earth God has scattered us in? How do we, how do we be light in whatever room he has placed us in? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense to, to me. Um, I feel like I'm rambling a lot. I'm sorry about that. Well, that, that's why we me? brought you on. We that's why we that's, brought you on. Ramble on, my friend. Yeah, there's not <laughs> enough rambling going on. There's only sound bites. We need more rambles and 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 speeches, uh, in conversation form. But I, I think even just uh, the conversation piece of being able to have dialogue in general is part of the struggle. Like I don't think people could have deep conversations. Uh, with people who are from a completely different background. Forget about which is within the church, but just in general, because of the, the social media technologies, there's, there's a deeper issue here um, where, where I'm concerned about, because if you can't have deep conversations with someone, you can't really evangelize that person. Uh, if, if, you, if you just run away, flight or flight, uh, and not just listen and sit still, um, I, I feel like a lot of productive dialogue gets 
lost and we become lonelier the more we do it. Um, a, big, a big text for me is Paul in Athens on that. Like Christianity is not a dualistic faith. It's not a Manichaean faith where good and evil are these equally powerful oppositional forces and just by the skin of our teeth, good is going to win and triumph over this thing that is of a different substance from it. Uh, Christianity teaches us that evil is a distorted good. The devil is a fallen angel. Uh, things that are evil in the world are idols, which are taking a created thing that is downstream of the ultimate good and putting more emphasis or priority on it than it was ever meant to bear. Um, I, a way I describe it in our classes is that uh, we are fun house mirrors uh, where there is, we are reflecting and distorting God's image at the same time. Uh, so one of the things that we see that Paul does in Athens is he goes into a land that is filled with people that don't share his faith or don't share his presuppositions. It's a group that he already understands pretty well because he had a Greek education. So he was, or so he was already well positioned to speak to them. Then he got to know, we see that he walked around the city, looked at it, got to know it, took it in. And then after he listened carefully, watched carefully, um, and sought to understand these people that he was already part of, he had a Greek education, but then after becoming a Christian, he studied them through the eyes of Christ in a different way. And then he was finally ready to talk to them about how the things they shared, the things that he had learned and internalized as a Greek and the things they were expressing um, that they valued, A, reflected the image of God. He said that I see you're very faithful. I see that you understand every aspect of life has something sacred about it. This is a good thing. If he were into Abraham Kuyper, which I'm borderline on Kuyper, but he would have said that, like, I see you already understand that every square inch of life is a square inch over which the divine claims some kind of authority. And then he pointed to where their practice was distorted. He said that, I see that you already know everything is sacred, but you think some things are unknown. You have these um, monuments to an unknown God. And I'm telling you that where the gospel completes what you're longing after is that God wants to be known. We might think he's unknown, but he's actually stepping in to be proactively known and seen. And that is where you're distorting it. Uh, and that is a big part of what I think Christians need to do with our cultural tribes, our subcultural tribes, and our political tribes in the U.S. Like Paul, who had a Greek education, we are already pretty well positioned to understand a lot of what people on the left are really hoping for and seeing if we're on the left. Mm -hmm. We're well positioned to understand what people on the right are hoping for if we're on the right, or we're well positioned to understand what cynics or um, kind of what cynics are hoping for if we ourselves are feeling cynical. Mm -hmm. But because of the gospel and through the witness of brothers and sisters who don't share our cynicism or don't share our commitment to the left or don't share our commitment to the right, 
we also have access to voices that can point out to us where our political commitments might be distorting the image of God. And then we can report that. We have credibility to report that back to people in our tribe that people on the other side don't. Right. Our right. goal as a Christian who, uh, Christian Republicans, but to make Republicans more Christian. Hmm. Our goal as a Christian who considers himself a Democrat is not to make other Christians Democrats, but to make Democrats more Christian, to be better for the Democratic Party for its moral and spiritual health than non-Christians would be. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, Paul in Athens is a very big model for us in terms of how we are trying to get people to understand what we might be called to mm. in the public square in the U.S., what we might be called to do in political debate is not to help our side win, but instead to make our side better, to help our side see where it falls short of gospel truth mm. in a way that our political opponents never could because they don't have credibility with our side. I, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I, one of the things that I appreciate about being a part of the church is that we have this rich Christian tradition and we have family members that are ancient <laughs> who, who, can, who can speak to things in, from such a different perspective and angle and can, um, can give us truth from outside of our specific location and time and history and remind us of good news and different different ways of doing life that maybe we fail to see in the present and it's part of this sort of tapestry of of uh, faith that we also have in culture but you know when we're talking about um, speaking into our specific political ideologies and convictions you know, the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party only go so far, but we have this rich family history that trans, you know, transcends ideology and transcends political parties that goes back to, you know, uh, Jesus and the 12 and all the way back to Abraham and his family. So we've got like, you know, a, a lot to work with and a lot of resources to pull from. Um, as we kind of start to wrap it up, um, we're coming to a close at our time. I, I would just love um, to get from you. Um, some perspective on some resources. We've um, already noted uh, you can go to christiancivics.org and start to explore some of the resources you guys offer. If people are interested in doing some reading um, or interested in some literature and how to start thinking about um, doing political theology or engaging theology and culture, um, what would you suggest uh, some good reading pieces? Um, um, if you sign up for our newsletter later this week, I'll actually be sending out about our blog's been around for about five years now and i'm going to send out a compendium of articles we've written um, and published from different writers over the last five years that get at concepts that i think are important for christians to bear in mind in our discipleship hmm. during uh, this era of mass protests in response to racial inequality in our country and in the way our um physically coercive institutions um, exercise their state authority in their practices. Um, so we're going to be sending out that email later this week. And as soon as we do, it will also be on our website in the newsletter section in case you can't sign up in time. We have a Bible study guide up on our website already called Light mm -hmm. to the World, 
navigating politics in light of the Christian story. And that is a four chapter study guide going through the Bible story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And um, getting, giving you kind of scripture to read and think about and questions to discuss with others and notes for leaders to lead conversation about the way each of those chapters changes the way we should behave and speak and think when it comes to politics during divisive periods like election years or the world burning down around us as it feels like it is for a lot of people right now. Right. Um, we're over the next couple months, we're rolling out a few other shorter Bible study guides on faith and citizenship, faith and partisanship, how to lead prayer in the wake of national emergencies. Um, so you can keep an eye on our website or on our newsletter for all of that. Um, there are also a couple organizations that I just want to direct people to as well. Um, we're friends and partners with uh, an organization called The Front Porch that's a collection of Black evangelical leaders um, having inter what would normally be internal conversations and equipping in public. So if you are trying to kind of understand where the Black church might be coming from in this in a way that is theologically resonant with you, that's an organization I would probably commend taking a look at. Um, and obviously, I think our trainings are great and they're pretty broad. But if you're looking specifically for um, some kind of training or equipping just on the issue of race and not where race and ethnicity intersect with politics and civic responsibility, there is an organization called the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission that we like and point people to. Um, we're also, um, there's an organization called Little Lights Urban Ministries in Washington, D.C. that is um, moving its in-person racial intelligence trainings online um, for the summer because of COVID-19. And that actually now means if you're not in the DC area, you have an opportunity to participate in it. These are all theologically sound uh, and led by people I know and trust and whose commitment to the health of the church I know and trust. Um, they're narrowly focused just on the issue of understanding race and ethnic identity. Uh, so if that's kind of, if you're just looking for the quick fix on that one topic, I think you could do a lot worse than looking at them. But if you're looking for broader perspective after that on how does that play into your political formation and how do we practice healthy politics and governmental responsibility as a church without getting into partisan triumphalism? How do we become a Galatians 3 or, a, or a, sorry, a Galatians 3 or Colossians 3 community, but also train people to be Zacchaeus after his conversion? Mm -hmm. um, then I would recommend talk to us about bringing in at least one of our one-off classes, if not um, actually implementing our foundations program at your church. Sure, sure. Rick, it's been uh, a real pleasure getting to talk to you today. Um, I appreciate uh, you being open with us and sharing uh, everything you guys do. Um, and, and we just appreciate in the time that's uh, very turbulent, uh, you presenting a sense of calm about moving forward. So thank you for um, your ministry. Thank you for the time that you've shared with us. It's been uh, a real pleasure to get to know you. Haig knows you. It's been a first uh, to meet you. 
from from my end. So uh, uh, it's it's a pleasure to be able to connect with you today. And I uh, I had finished my coffee a long time ago. I finished mine before we even started. Actually, <laughs> I think I think uh, it's safe to say that it's one of those weeks. <laughs> yeah, we've we've run through our coffee um, with uh, with much ease, but. Uh, we're going to wrap it up and uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to, to next week when we'll reconnect with everybody. But uh, Rick, pleasure seeing you. Um, you as well. And I just want to say, I appreciate your ministry. I appreciate what you all are doing. I'm half Armenian. I grew up in the Armenian church, became a Christian as an adult. And um, yeah, I trying, I appreciate anyone in the Armenian church who takes seriously the inheritance and the legacy of, faith that we're carrying into this country as mm. Armenians mm. Um, yeah, and trying to care for steward and make spiritually beautiful these gathering points in this kind of intersection of, of Armenian culture and Christian identity. And yeah, um, I, it means a lot to me to see what you all are doing and uh, the way you all are trying to, care for steward and shepherd um, our brethren so, thanks Rick. thank you thank you thank you thank we appreciate it and uh and we look forward to seeing everyone uh as we come around next week as haig always says uh stay caffeinated <laughs> thanks Enjoy brother take care everyone